Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Let's begin reading on, at verse 17 of chapter 3. So just one paragraph up. We'll get a sense of how Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, closes up that thought and begins in the first three verses of chapter 4. This is God's holy and inspired word, inerrant and perfect to accomplish his appointed purposes. He gives it to his people for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. As I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You may respond with thanks be to God. Philippians 3, verse 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you ask my daughters, end of October is a time when they're constantly badgered by dad with reminders that in our home, we don't celebrate Halloween, we celebrate Reformation Day. And if they want to go and receive candy door to door this coming week, they have two options that they can say at the door, and neither of which is trick or treat. They can say two things. They can say Martin Luther, or they can say faith alone. And if they get candy or not from that, I guess it remains to the people giving it out to decide. But uh, that's what the end of October is for them. Around Reformation Day, what I think of, two things basically, is the doctrines of grace and Scripture alone being our final authority. That's really what comes to my mind when I think about uh, our remembering the beginning of the Reformation and what came out of the Reformation. Really, a proper understanding of grace and being normed finally by Scripture alone. I've shared with you that Latin phrase. It's a wonderful Latin phrase to keep in mind. If this is all the Latin you know, you're going to be okay. Uh, Luther had this phrase, norma normans non normata. Scripture is the norm of norms that cannot be normed. In our life, it is God's word 
and since it is God's word, we bind ourselves to it. That reminds us of the battle that uh, Luther thought, that Luther fought in the Reformation, the beginnings of the Reformation. His famous Here I Stand speech, which has been passed down through the ages, which he gave in the presence of Charles V, is something that comes to mind. But here I stand. I stand on the truth of Scripture. He was asked to recant all of his writings uh, just in one fell swoop. There were some things in there which the Roman Catholic Church disagreed with, some things that they agreed with, but they wanted him to renounce everything that he had written in one fell swoop, sort of to, as a reminder to everyone who was really running the show, who was in charge. He does not recant. Why? He says, if you cannot show me from Scripture, from the Word of God, where I have erred, I will not recant. And so he says, my conscience is bound to the Word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and will not recant what I have written. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. A strong fighter for the truth of God's word. A willing fighter for God's truth. Often Luther can be harsh in the words that he uses in his disputations. If you read some of his writings, he can be harsh with his words. And yet, with Luther, we also find a tender and a compassionate pastor. Listen to these words. Each one, this is Luther writing, each one ought to live, speak, act, hear, suffer, and die in love and service for another, even for one's enemies, a husband for his wife and children, a wife for her husband, children, uh, a wife for her husband, children for their parents, servants for their masters, masters for their servants, rulers for their subjects, and subjects for their rulers, so that one's hand, mouth, eye, foot, heart, and desire is for others. These are Christian works, good in nature. As Reformed people, we can often uh, be categorized as those who uh, are precise and are standing firm in doctrine, the, the, the documents to which we look, our confessions and our catechisms, such wonderful expressions of the system of doctrine found in Scripture. We catechize our children. And we have them memorize these essential truths of the Scripture. Because this is how you are to walk through life. And when something happens that you never saw coming, To your mind are to come the words, what is your only comfort in life and in death? But to drive a wedge between our doctrine and the way that we live our life, the love to which we are called, is to miss the message entirely. Right? If you drive a wedge between the doctrine that we hold so dear and the life to which God calls us, you're missing the message. Here's a life-transforming reality today. To be firm in doctrine is to be fierce in love. To stand firm in doctrine is to be fierce in love. Well, think about this, and I want to do it as we consider three prepositions. On, in, and with. We stand firm on truth. We have a common reality of being united in Christ. And we are called to a life of radical togetherness and selfless sacrifice in love. On, in, and with. First, on. Stand firm on truth. 
The, the, if you boil down the commandment of verse 1, what Paul is saying is, therefore, which causes us to look back, therefore, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, beloved. This is how you should do it. Therefore. Now, chapter 3, uh, I hope you were as blessed as I was, just even studying chapter 3 and thinking about what Paul is doing there under the Spirit's inspiration, uh, clearly articulating gospel truth and gospel living. And essentially, he's summing that up or calling attention to that once again and saying, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord. He has addressed two different errors, two glaring and present errors in the church in chapter 3. The first was that of the Judaizing party. Remember that, right? These are the legalists who think you can establish your own righteousness before God. And Paul has rebuked them and said, this takes away from the glory of Christ, this takes away from the merit of Christ, it misunderstands salvation, they're enemies of God's truth because they are saying something contrary to Scripture. The gospel is that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And because that is true, because in Christ you find all that you need, he is to be the treasure of your souls. He is to be the one to which you look and say, in him I find everything I need for my life. To live on Christ's love is a king's life, as Samuel Rutherford says. In him we find all that we need. And a heart that recognizes that is a heart that's kept away from the second error. And the second error is uh, being uh, antinomian, being against God's law, thinking that since you are under grace in Christ, you are able to live in licentiousness, you are able to live uh, in purposeful sin, because you're saying, as I sin, God's grace increases. And this is when Paul is addressing that error, he's saying, Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. They're walking as enemies of the cross of Christ because they have rejected the order and the life to which God has called you. The argument, the thrust of the book has been, in Christ, you are made citizens of heaven. In Christ, you are brought into God's household. That is the city to which you belong. And how does one live and act coming from that city? And we have some of those regional distinctions in our world. Sometimes people from the South have certain characteristics, right? Uh, very polite in the way that they talk, but sometimes they have a reputation of being polite to your face and they will sometimes gossip behind your back. Uh, Midwestern people can be a little bit more firm, blunt, straightforward. These kinds of regional distinctions. These are not perfect analogies, but Paul's point is, you come from heaven, that is your home, there's a code of ethics, a code of living that defines who you are. You are part of God's household, you are in his family, and how do members of that family act and live according to how your father has taught you? So the call here is to stand firm with the clear teachings of the gospel, to preach it, to teach it, to proclaim it, and to live it, keeping free especially of these two errors, not taking away from the merit of Christ and not living in a way that shows you have not been transformed by the grace of God, not doubting grace and not exploiting grace. Stand firm. The command to stand firm is really a a military image, isn't it? Don't retreat. 
Don't surrender. The, the church is called to wage war against the dark spiritual powers of the age. Not to bear physical swords for the gospel, but to wage war against our enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. This is a motif that often today the church can miss out on. But leaning into this picture of waging war and doing it together, this is what prepares us for the tough times and the challenges that lie ahead. A mighty fortress is our God. Some of the older hymns of the faith really bring this out and remind us that this is a war that we're fighting. Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on, strong in the strength which God supplies through his eternal Son, strong in the Lord of hosts and in his mighty power, who in the strength of Jesus trusts is more than conqueror. Stand firm, don't retreat, don't surrender. Therefore, my beloved brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, called to stand on the sure ground of the gospel which we have inherited. The Reformation was about that, recovering grace. What is grace? How do you give it to the world? If we don't have the grace of God to give to the world, we are hopeless. That's the message that we proclaim. And we need to get it right. The confidence to stand firm is that we stand firm in the Lord, in Christ. Christ, in the picture of Philippians, what is he? He is humbled, crucified, risen, ascended, and reigning. To look at the whole sweep of the, of the redemptive historical project of Jesus Christ, of him humbling himself, he left his father's throne above. He humbled himself, he went all the way to the cross, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he is reigning over all things. That's the confidence with which we can stand in the Lord. We see him risen, ascended, and reigning, and like Martin Luther, we, we say, uh, why would we leave uh, or go against God? Why would we go against Jesus Christ? To do so would be crazy. Stand firm on the truth. Be firm in our doctrine. Second preposition, in, is that we have a common reality of union with Christ. That the church shares this common reality of being united to Christ, of being uh, given this new life in the Spirit. There's this, this very interesting appeal that Paul makes to Euodia and Syntyche, very famous and talked about, these two women who are part of the Philippian church. A very personal address. And they were important to the church. They were involved in the founding of the Philippian church. And this reminds us that all Christians are gifted by God and by the Holy Spirit to occupy an important place within the body of Christ. Look at the teachings of Paul. And clearly, he teaches that women are not called to be pastors or officers in the church. And yet, here you have these two women in the Philippian church that occupy an important place in the body, an honored place, and uh, they have a vital place in the body. That is why Paul is so concerned with their being reconciled to one another. Question and answer 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What does it say? 
It teaches us about the anointing that we all share and the common life to which we are called in Christ as Christians. Why are you called a Christian, it says? Because by faith, I am a member of Christ, right? Men, women, and children. And so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. That's the same for all of us. We have that same anointing. We're all gifted to have an important and a vital place in the body of Christ, to serve one another, and to strive together for a common goal to present ourselves as sacrifices, to strive against sin and the devil, to yearn most of all for what God has for us in the resurrection. It's important to see, I think, to notice not necessarily what Paul says here, but what he doesn't say. What's interesting is what he doesn't say. He doesn't talk about the explicit situation that has driven these two women apart from each other. What he does is rather he appeals to the reality of their being in Christ together. Most scholars think that at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is already setting these two women up to be able to call them to reconcile. Philippians chapter 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying, this is who you are in Christ. You must live according to that reality. This common union with Christ and this life that you share in the Spirit, it's already accomplished. It's already a reality. So live out that unity in Christ. I think it's also important to say that that whatever was driving them apart, whatever had caused this disagreement with Yodia and Syntyche, it was not a primary doctrinal issue. Think about the way in which Paul addresses doctrinal errors in chapter 3. And so whatever this was, probably some kind of serious personal disagreement, but whatever it was, is not a primary doctrinal issue. So he is not calling the church to have unity above truth. He's calling the church to have unity in the truth. And when there is an unnecessary rift in God's people, our responsibility is to fight for, to yearn for reconciliation and health in the body. Reconciliation in the body of Christ is a radical otherworldly thing because according to our fleshly desires, when we are the offended party, so often our desire is to say, I don't, I don't want to, uh, to reconcile because I'm so embittered towards that person that wronged me. And when we wrong someone else, so often we can convince ourselves over the course of time that we were justified in doing so. But to love as you have been loved, to forgive as you have been forgiven, calls us us to this radical way of life because we are both, both the offending party and the one who was offended. We are called to come to the table not seeking recompense, but reconciliation. Forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Why? Because of the extent to which you have been forgiven. Come to the table ready to receive forgiveness. Eagerly seeking to be able to forgive someone. 
with the grace that God has shown to you. It's because of that common unity, that reality in Christ. And then that leads us into this final idea as we close. We stand, on, stand firm on truth, realize the reality of being in Christ, and then this uh, life of wondrous togetherness that we are called to as God's people with. We are called to live life with one another, to do it uh, together. If we go back to verse 1, Paul describes the church as a couple things there. He says, you are loved and you are longed for. Beloved brothers and sisters, I love you. I long to see you. I long for you. And if you go all the way back to the beginning of the letter, Paul says that he loves them and he longs for them with the affection of Jesus Christ. The love we have for one another is is a love that is created in our hearts through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. We love one another with the affection of Jesus Christ. It's a supernatural love. It's an otherworldly love. It's trusting that God is creating this love and this affection. I wanted to read that commandment from John 15 today. uh, The call that Jesus has to love one another. Because in the word of God, we don't have just the words of men. We don't have just opinions. God's word contains spirit and life. It creates that which it calls for. So to read these commands, to think about the love to which we are called as we go to God's word and as we internalize God's word and as we trust the spirit to be working with that word, it is creating that kind of love in our hearts. That's the confidence with which Paul speaks. I love you with the affection of Jesus Christ. I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. It's the first thing. It's a supernatural love that we are to have for one another. Secondly, it's a family love, isn't it? He calls them brothers, really meaning brothers and sisters. He uses the term brothers to be all-encompassing. Brothers and sisters, we are the family of God. This is not a mere platitude that Paul throws around so that the church can feel warm and fuzzy. The principle here is that the way that we naturally fight for the safety, welfare, and unity of our families is the way that we ought to do so for the body of Christ. Both are gifts of God. Both are wonderful. The one you find naturally in your heart, the way you fight for the safety, unity, and welfare of your family is the way you ought to do so for the body of Christ. My sister's moving back to China this week. I'm worried about her. I don't like the facts often that I think about she is in a country that's very hostile to Christians. I'm very concerned for her safety. And that's a natural thing to feel. When there's a rift in, one of my, in a family relationship, a, a family member and myself, I often feel sick to my stomach until it is resolved. There's something unnatural about that. We all do that because of our deep concern for safety, welfare, and unity in our families. No pain is deeper than those wounds we bear from family pain and strife. And that's why Paul has such a serious appeal for these two women to reconcile. Your family. You're part of the family of God. This is the mindset that we are to have 
We are to have a deep desire to achieve love and unity as the body of Christ because God has created that unity. And when we let our sin get in the way of that unity, it grieves our Father. Be united, not above truth, but in truth. It's not only a family love, it's a a forward-looking love. He says, you are my joy and my crown. We've talked a lot about Jesus Christ being the treasure of our souls. Paul, of course, isn't going against that teaching here. What he's saying is this. The life that you think about, the life that you live in Christ, as you strive forward to that full and final attaining of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, the race that we, want, that we run, right? We begin at the starting line. We're resting in the grip of the Savior. We're assured of victory, and we're running that race. But here's the mindset we are to have. It's not a race that we're running so that we can set our own personal record. It's a race in which we, we run where our goal is we're all going to get to that finish line together. We're going to get there together. It's not my goal to beat all of you there. I want to get there together. It makes me feel, uh, it reminds me of this story, a little bit old now. This is more when I was growing up, but I remember this dad who ran in the, uh, the Hawaii Ironman every year. And he did it uh, pulling, pushing, towing his handicapped son. He put him in a raft, he would swim, pull the raft, and then he would put his son behind the bike, he would bike the 110 miles or whatever it is in a full Ironman, and then he would run a marathon pushing his son in front of him. Sometimes people would ask him and say, you know, you finish an Ironman uh, pulling and pushing another person, if you did it by yourself, you could probably be pretty competitive. You, you might even be towards the top and challenging for victories in some of these races. He says, that's not why I run. I do it to get my son over the finish line. And that's the mindset that we are to have running the race in life in Christ. Not so that we get there first, but so that we all get there together. Our joy and our crown is that on the last day, as Christ is our treasure, and we see him and we behold him and we know him fully and finally, all by his grace, all to his glory, we will have gotten there together. Our joy and crown is to see our brothers and sisters together with us on the last day. And then finally, once again, at the end of our passage, we see that there's an assurance of confidence. Why? How can we live with this radical sacrifice? How can we live with an assured sense that we can live for others? It's because in Christ, our names are written in the book of life. It's already etched in stone, as we've reminded ourselves of multiple times today. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election is meant to comfort our hearts so that as we look to the life to which God calls us, we can live with a radical otherness and sacrifice and self-giving. Why? Because the ultimate prize is already assured by God's grace. Live with the confidence that the apostle asserts here as he names all of his workers and he's saying, uh, I want you to be concerned about Euodia and Syntyche there when he says loyal yoke fellow. There's probably some other special person in the church especially equipped to be able to bring reconciliation between these two women. 
He says, think about Clement and think about all the others who have been with me in fighting in the cause of the gospel. Remember that you've all been on the battlefield together. Don't forget that. Remember that you have a common bond. You've made common sacrifice. And because of what God has done in your hearts, you are to live out that unity. And never forget that you have the assurance that in Christ, your name is written in the book of life. Stand firm on truth. Realize the common reality we have of union with Christ and the life of sacrificial giving and love to which that that, that calls all of us. To be firm in doctrine is to be fierce in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory and we thank you for the message that we have inherited, this message of grace and the life to which you call us. May you give us the courage and the the grace and the presence of your spirit to, to live out all of these things. Equip us, all of us, men, women, and children, to have a vital place in the body to give ourselves to one another and to love as we have been loved and forgive as we have been forgiven. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together, sing number 10 in our white songbooks, In Christ Alone. Number 10, In Christ Alone. Stand together and sing.
in his grace receive God's parting blessing. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages and now and forevermore. Amen.